0: Palm Sunday? All right. What is Palm Sunday? How many of us know what Palm Sunday actually is? What is Palm Sunday to you? The day Jesus went into Jerusalem, okay? Why do we call it Palm Sunday? What are the palms all about? Okay. Fawn's awake. Fons here. So, some of you think it's Palm Sunday because we wave palms on Sunday, on that Sunday. Uh, there's a reason we actually have the palms. Uh, if you're Catholic, Palm Sunday is a whole other thing as well, and with the ashes, and they incorporate the whole thing into it. Uh, but if you don't know, we've been celebrating Palm Sunday since about the third century, okay? So it's a long time. If you didn't know, uh, we're a little bit past that now. Uh, What century are we in now? (laughs) So, I don't know. 21st century, all right? Uh, But there's a reason that we call it Palm Sunday, and we're actually going to look in the Bible at historically why we call it Palm Sunday. Uh, John 12, uh, verses 12 to 13. So this morning, I'm deviating from my normal plan. Normally, I read from the New Living Translation, but uh, I love the New Living Translation, except they... They translate things a little too much, Uh, and most of the time when when you preach on Palm Sunday or you listen to a sermon on Palm Sunday, what word do you want to hear? Well, Palm, yeah, but what's the first song we sang? Hosanna, Hosanna, right. And if you read it in New Living Translation, they actually translate what Hosanna means instead of having the word Hosanna, so uh, it kind of defeats what we're going to be talking about today. So I'm going to read from my preferred translation the esv the english standard version so if you normally follow along with us and you in your own bible and you normally have the new living translation up uh you don't have the wrong verse up i'm just reading from a different translation this morning so john chapter 12 verses 12 and 13 the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that jesus was coming to jerusalem so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out hosanna Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Okay? So that's why we call it Palm Sunday. Because this is historically what happened is the people brought out palm branches and laid them down as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. Um, Today marks the beginning of what week? Holy week. All right. Other people are awake this morning. I like this. Must have been good coffee out there this morning. I have to thank them. Holy Week. Uh, if you're not familiar with what Holy Week is, um, I encourage you to do a little research. We're not going to dive into what Holy week's all about, um, but suffice to say that Palm Sunday is the beginning of this week. It's the, week, it's the day Jesus enters Jerusalem. Um, now, Jesus had been in, to Jerusalem previously, uh, multiple occasions possibly, but this time was different. He decided to enter Jerusalem in a very different way, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But this is the day, uh, historically, that Jesus entered Jerusalem, and it begins this week-long preparation. Because if you didn't know, uh, what we celebrate on Friday is what? The crucifixion, the death of Jesus. And Sunday, a week from today, we celebrate what? Resurrection. Resurrection, that's right. That he not only died, but he rose again. So this is a big week. Uh, and if if there's no other week of the year that you take very seriously, I encourage you to take Holy Week very seriously. Spend some extra time with God. Do some research. Um, you can read through um, the gospel accounts um, on Holy Week. A couple great ideas of things to do. If you follow along in our Bible reading plan, if you want a little extra work during Holy Week, they actually um, have... Uh, specific reading plans for just for holy week so if you've never downloaded the bible you version um, if you just google or uh, on play store or apple if you just search the word bible it's the first one that comes up um, they have some cool reading plans that you can just walk through on holy week so a couple ideas there for you to, in- to increase your uh, spiritual awareness through holy week but like I said, this is not the first time Jesus enters Jerusalem, but he enters it in a very different way this time. Uh, it's a unique entrance into Jerusalem. There's a ton of symbolism to what Jesus does, and we just don't have time to cover all of that this morning. I just want to let you know it's there, and if you're a nerd like me and you like to do a lot of study and you like to research things, so research it, because all the symbolism there is pretty incredible. But if you know the full story, if you know the whole story of Jesus entering Jerusalem and what takes place in that week and all the things that, that occur, you know that as these people are, are lining the streets from Bethpage into Jerusalem, um, yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. If you know the whole story, they go from Hosanna to crucify him very quickly. It's not a long transition. Sunday to Friday is really not a long length of time. Today we're going to discuss why that was. Why did the people go from chanting Hosanna to just a few days later yelling crucify him. We're going to look at why that happened and how we can avoid having the same attitude toward God. You might look at that and think, oh, there's no way I would ever think that way. I would never think uh, or yell the words crucify him. Well, that's probably true. But we can live in a way That our actions, our lifestyle, says crucify him. So how do we not make the same mistakes? How many of you, question this morning, first one, not a trick question, maybe. How many of you think that Judas Iscariot, if you don't know who that is, he's the the disciple that betrayed Jesus. How many of you think uh, that Judas Iscariot was a decent guy? Two or three people think Judas is scary was a decent guy. Let me ask you a follow up question. Have you ever wondered why Jesus called Judas? He didn't call everybody. As a matter of fact, his inner circle only had twelve. Why was Judas one of the twelve? Did Jesus just handpick him because he knew he was a terrible person? Did Judas decide to follow Jesus because he thought, well, I'm going to follow this not very popular, uh, completely unorthodox rabbi. I'm going to give everything up and I'm going to follow him because that sounds like a great idea. So we learn about Judas later on. He's pretty smart. Okay, He's obviously pretty sharp. He's in charge of the money for the disciples and he's kind of shaving off some for his own good. So he's, he's a bit greedy. Uh, we notice he's, he's probably at least moderately intelligent, he's very greedy, why would he ever follow Jesus? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question. Because following Jesus was not a promise of any kind of wealth. Uh, though Judas was shaving money off for himself, it was not a luxurious lifestyle amount. Even if he took 100% of what the disciples took in, it wouldn't have been uh, a very impressive amount of money. So the small bit that he was keeping for himself was not significant. So why? Why did Jesus call him in the first place? And why did he follow him? My argument is that we only view Judas off of his mistake. That's how we view him. How many of you would like it if we viewed you by your biggest mistake? No? Okay. So maybe we need to rethink a little bit of the way we view Judas first this morning. So often we hear Judas is getting me think, ah, oh, he's a horrible person. I'm telling you right now, you wouldn't want me up here if you only referred to me by my biggest mistake. You would have never called me to be your pastor, I'll tell you that. And so we need to rethink a little bit of what who Judas was. And my argument this morning, I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, Bruce's understanding, okay, uh, my argument for Judas is that he just got it before everybody else did. I think he was actually pretty intelligent, and he got it before everybody else did. Now, I'm not going to explain what I mean by that just yet. But I think we have to ask ourselves, what made Judas go from willing, being willing to give up everything? Because, let's be honest, when Jesus calls Judas for him to say yes, Jesus required the same thing of all of his disciples— Give up everything. If you want to follow me, give up everything. And so there was a point in time when Judas was willing to give up everything for Jesus and say, I will follow you. I recognize there's something different about you because any good Jewish person wouldn't have followed Jesus. Because Jesus didn't go about it the same way that good Jewish people followed, he wasn't a rabbi in the traditional sense. He didn't, uh, he wasn't trained up in the ways that normal Pharisees or normal typical rabbis were trained up. And so, in according to the current Jewish customs, Jesus had no right to call people as disciples and refer to himself as a rabbi, according to their rules. And so, for Judas to follow Jesus, there had to be an acknowledgment. This, there's something different about this guy. There's something about him w- that's worthy of me giving up everything. And so my argument this morning is if you call yourself a Christian, there was a moment in time, at least one, where if you understood the gospel properly... You were willing to give Jesus everything. You saw him as somebody worth following and said, it's worth everything. But, like Judas, many of us have gone back on that. See, I believe that Judas arrived at the same understanding those who were cheering Hosanna did just a few days later. Judas just got it first. To understand what I mean by Judah's got it before everyone else, I think we first need to understand why the people were so adamantly chanting Hosanna. Because most of you probably don't yell Hosanna very often. It's not something you yell during a sports game uh, or during dinner or any other time like that. Um, it's not during worship. You know, we, someone's yelling Hosanna! Not normally, just on Palm Sunday we do that and it's accepted. Uh, so why were they chanting Hosanna. To fully understand why, uh, we're going to turn to the uh, account in the Bible that's called the Triumphal Entry. Uh, this is um, Jesus' unique entry into Jerusalem, and it's found in Matthew 21. So if you want to follow along in your own Bibles, you can. If not, we'll be reading it in, uh, on the screen as well. Again, we're going to continue in the ESV this morning. So Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. Your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So the people chanted Hosanna. So the word Hosanna uh, is roughly translated, save us now. Uh, there's this, it's not an actual word you'll find in Hebrew or something that the Jewish people, uh, specifically a word you'll read in the Old Testament. Um, but they've kind of added to it uh, this original word. And they've, what they've added to it is this imperative and that's why, it, so it doesn't just mean save us, it means save us now, like we are in desperate need of being saved, is what Hosanna means. It actually comes from Psalm 118, verse 25, which is not in here. Perfect. I missed it. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Success. That's what Psalm 118.25 says. And so this, that first part, that save us, we pray, O Lord, is a, a specific Hebrew uh, term. And they've basically added to that this other part of it that now is the word Hosanna, which is translated as save us, Lord, now. There's this, uh, Hebrew language is pretty, uh, pretty cool. Um, so is the Greek. And they can add things just by, they don't add an actual word. It just adds this Im- imperative to it. So, so, the people are cheering this Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna as Jesus is entering. But here's the thing. They were cheering it to a God who doesn't exist. They were cheering it to a Jesus who was not real. They cheer it, were cheering it to the same false Jesus that many of us still cheer for. A Jesus who removes the consequences of our bad decisions. A Jesus who is there to advance their physical kingdom, to make them rich, to make them prosperous. A Jesus who does what they want when they want it. That's the Jesus they were cheering Hosanna to. And he doesn't exist. They were cheering to a God who is not real, who only exists in their minds and in their desires. That's who they were cheering to. The people were cheering for Jesus because they thought this popular charismatic teacher who was creating all of this buzz and was fighting against normal traditions and seemed to have a significant following that he was going to overthrow the Romans and he was going to lead a revolt to free the Jewish people from their oppression. That's the Jesus they were cheering to. That's the Jesus they laid their cloaks down for and the palms down for and were so excited that he was entering Jerusalem and not just entering Jerusalem, but he was entering on a donkey. And if you don't know the significance of that, do a little research. There's a lot of symbolism to what Jesus did. And they thought, this is it, finally, he's coming. How many of you are following along in the reading plan with us right now? What book did we just come out of? All right, I just want to check that you're actually reading. Imagine, I want you to put your mindset, if you've ever re- read the book of Judges, some of you, we just got done reading it. Have you ever thought about this story, this, this historical account of Jesus entering Jerusalem, in light of the book of Judges? Think about what the Jewish people were thinking. Because very often, God would raise up a prophet, he would raise up a man of God or a woman of God, and they would judge Israel, which meant what? A lot of times it meant that they would save them from their current oppression. They would lead armies, and they would revolt against the oppressing force, and they would gain freedom for the Israelites, and then they could finally worship again uh, freely from no oppression. That's the Jesus they were worshiping that day. Again, we go back to Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray. Give us success. I don't know if you've ever prayed for success from the Lord, but that prayer can be holy and it can be very unholy based on what our mindset of success is. So these people, they, they celebrated this event. They were so excited that Jesus was coming in Jerusalem, because for the majority of them, they thought, finally, we'll be free of these Romans." If you didn't know, the Romans had occupied uh, much of the known world, and the Israelites felt the oppression from the Romans very heavily. They were not able to worship freely. They weren't able to live their lives very freely. The Romans took a lot of what they produced and what they made and made their lives very difficult, very similar to the book of Judges. As we look at whether it was the Moabites or the Philistines or uh, what group of people it was that was oppressing Israel, the Romans were doing a very similar thing. And so finally they thought they'd be free. And this Jesus guy, man, he was charismatic. He had a following and he, he did things differently He was even willing to oppose the the crazy structure of of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so the people probably thought, man, we won't even just be free of the Romans, but we'll be free of these Pharisees and these Sadducees. And this guy's going to lead this whole new movement of of freedom, of life, and we'll be good and we'll be prosperous again. So Hosanna! Yay! He's coming. See, why were the Israelites israel lights in being oppressed where did the oppression come from was it because they loved god so much and they served him so well i like sarcasm of course not read the book of judges god didn't send the philistines and the moabites or whoever it was to oppress israel because they were worshiping him he did it because they chose to worship other things Things other than God, and so he sent oppressors against them. And unfortunately, very often, where, when is the church the best? In crisis. And Israelites were no different. When crisis finally hit them, when they were oppressed beyond reason, they called out to God. Up until then, man, it was the Ashtaroth, it was the Baals, it was the Chemosh, it was any god other than God they would try to worship until crisis hit that's why they were being oppressed because god allowed the romans to take over just like he had allowed others babylon and and all of these different places to take over israel to cast them into exile to mess up all of the promised land to do all these things because israel just refused to worship god for who he is That's why they were being oppressed. And they thought, finally, this Jesus is going to remove the consequences of our bad decisions. Finally, he's going to do that. Not because we are now worshiping God in spirit and truth, but because we want to be free. They weren't turning to God. They just wanted freedom. They wanted ease of life. They wanted to be successful again, but not in a healthy way. So on Sunday, they cheer, Hosanna! With all of their being, they chant Hosanna. And man, they mean it. Here's, that's the difference here. Uh, th- they weren't faking it on that day. They weren't faking it on Palm Sunday. They were legitimate. They, they were laying down their cloaks. They were laying down the palms. And they meant their worship. It just wasn't to a God that existed. But they, like Judas, finally got it. Jesus wasn't there to overthrow the Romans. Jesus wasn't there to save them from the consequences of their bad decisions. Jesus wasn't there to do what they wanted. And so, like Judas, the people turn on Jesus. Because Jesus didn't meet their expectations. Because, in their mind, Jesus was a liar. He promised The freedom from oppression. He promised salvation. He promised they would would hurt no more, that they would have this freedom, that they would finally be free. And did Jesus promise that? Yes, but not in the way they thought. See, Jesus, his mindset was so much bigger than these few years we spent on this earth. His salvation wasn't from the Romans. His freedom wasn't from oppression on this physical realm. What Jesus spoke of was so much greater. Their minds were just so small, so short-sighted, so focused on little things that they finally got it. Man, this Jesus, he is not who we hear him saying he is. But they thought, man, this guy isn't who he says he is. He's a fraud. He's not coming here to do what we want. See, they were willing to cheer, Hosanna! For Jesus, the Roman problem solver, but not Jesus the Messiah. They were willing to cheer, Hosanna! Jesus, save us from them, but not Jesus, save us from us. They were willing to trade eternal salvation for earthly salvation. They were less concerned with an eternal kingdom, than they were with their temporary, present kingdom. All they wanted was for their now to be better. And man, if you're not drawing some correlations to our lives here, you're missing it. How often do we cheer for a God who's going to fix our mistakes, who's going to remove the consequences of our sin, and how often when Jesus doesn't do that do we say, what's going on, God? God? I thought you loved me, and I'm still having to deal with the consequences of my bad decisions. You're not who you said you are. Or we're saying, Jesus, save us from other things. Save me from this. Save me from that. Save me from these people. Save me from my coworker. Save me from my boss. And Jesus, <laughs> I want to save you from you. You're the one that messed it up. You're the one that sinned. You're the reason that you're not going to enter heaven. Because of your sin, nobody else's, yours. Jesus wants to save us from us. And he wants to give us an eternal kingdom. He's working toward this eternal kingdom. And all we want is our now to be better. I want to be prosperous now. I want to be successful here. I want to have success in my job, in my relationships, in whatever else it is. My family, my parenting, and we we fail to see beyond just the temporary. Now, this may seem like a no brainer. Well, yeah, of course we should focus on an eternal kingdom. Oh, of course we should ask Jesus to save us from us. And oh, of course that we should worship Jesus the Messiah. But we do this all the time. We worship a God who does not exist. I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, which I wouldn't recommend to see it if you haven't, uh, unless you watch it through VidAngel and you can get rid of all the bad stuff. There's this movie called Talladega Nights, and there's this scene where they're eating dinner. And he begins to pray, and he prays, uh, the main character is praying to little baby Jesus. And they start to get on his case about it, and they're like, man, Jesus grew up. And what does he say? Well, I like to pray to baby Jesus. That's the Jesus I want to pray to. And then his friend, who's not really his friend, says what? He says, I I like to think of Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because it's formal, but it's also uh, like he's ready to party. And what does he say? I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. How often do we do that with Jesus? We pray to a God who doesn't exist. We worship a God who doesn't exist. We get angry at a God who doesn't exist. We hate a God who doesn't exist because we're not willing to do the work of learning who he is. We'd rather make up this God and then we worship him, which is called what? Idolatry. You might not have made a gold calf. You might not have a a wooden idol in your home. But many of us are idol worshipers just as much as Israel ever was. We're willing to do whatever it takes to get the favor of that God. And we think, well, if I do a good deed in the morning, if I I pay for the person behind me in Starbucks, then God has to do good things for me. Because that's my God. That's my Jesus. That's how I like him to work. Or if I'm bad and I I sin, well, then he should mess me up. He should give me a flat tire or something. I, I earned it. That's my Jesus. Or if I go to church on Sunday, my whole week should be good. Bad things shouldn't happen to me. If I pray often, if I read my Bible, then I, I should be good because that's my Jesus. That's the God I worship. And so often God looks at us and says, "And hey, will you just worship me? I'm here. I, I'm willing to get to be known. And you just won't do the work of getting to know me. Very similar. Again, God uses the, the analogy of marriage often because it's such a good analogy for our relationship with God. How many of us have found at one point or another that we were serving a spouse who didn't exist? We were buying them gifts thinking, boy, they should really be happy about this, to realize, well, I guess my wife really doesn't want a a dishwasher for her birthday. Um, That's not the wife that actually exists. She's not happy about that. And we do things for people who don't exist. They're just up here. We have these ideas in our mind. We decide who we want. And it's, it's interesting because this culture today, if you talk to people who don't know Jesus, if you talk to people who aren't Christians, so often they've created a spirituality that exists only here, but they're willing to base their entire eternal security on it, even though if you've talked to some people, they are way out in left field with some of the stuff they believe, with these weird things and all this different stuff, and but that's more comfortable to them. And we look at that and say, oh, well, that's so strange. That's, that's just weird. Why would anybody do that? Only to realize we do the same thing. We who, some of us, have been going to church and reading our Bibles for decades, we've been worshiping an idol who does not exist. And we wonder why we're constantly banging our head against a wall, why we're constantly feeling distant from God, why we're not experiencing the freedom, the joy that salvation brings why we're miserable, and why we don't have the power of God within us. It's because we're worshiping a God who just doesn't exist. As soon as Jesus doesn't turn out to be the God we decided he is, we question him. We lose faith. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who've quit church because the God they created failed them. We go from chanting Hosanna when we think Jesus is going to do what we want him to do to living a crucify him lifestyle to get what we want when God disappoints us. I just want to throw something out there this morning. If you've ever been disappointed by God, it's because either your expectations were bad or because your idea of who God is is completely inaccurate. God has never disappointed a person, ever. He is who he says he is. Instead of spending more time learning about who God is, we spend time complaining that God isn't our genie in a lamp that we expected him to be. That he's not the vending machine Jesus that we've created. We pushed A7, which was supposed to give us this successful lifestyle, this great job, this, this awesome spouse and all these kids, and we pushed that button and we didn't get it. We say, what's going on, God? What's the matter with you? I did everything you asked. I read my Bible. Man, I, I jumped on the church's reading plan. I did everything you asked. I don't miss a Sunday. Well, except for, you know, three or four every month, but I, I get there as often as I can. I'm there when I can be, when my schedule fits it, I'm there. So why haven't you blessed me in the way that I want to be blessed? Jesus never lied about who he was. Not once. He didn't create this false idea of who he was. He spoke plainly and clearly as to why he was there and who he was. But even in that, he to- and he even told them, You guys aren't going to get it. Your eyes are going to be blinded. You're just not going to see this. How many times, if you read the Bible, I don't know if Jesus ever did a face palm, but I can't imagine he made it through his life here on earth without doing a few of them. As he dealt with the disciples, as he dealt with his constant misunderstanding of his purpose, why he was there and why he had come, even though he explains it over and over and over. And he tells them certain things over and over and over again. And it's like speaking to a wall. The people just didn't get it. And we can condemn Judas for what he did and what he did was wrong. But he just got it before everybody else did. Before the other disciples, he realized, this guy's not bringing a physical kingdom. He's not leading us to freedom from the Romans. He's not here to do what we want. And that's when he turned. And that's when many of us turn on God. That's where some people who you look around this room and they used to be here, now they don't go to church anymore. That's where they turned on God. Because they had this idea of who he was when they realized that he wasn't who we thought he said he was, we're done with him. See, the other disciples, you didn't realize it. See, we can look at Judas and say, ah, he wasn't a very decent guy. Now, if I asked you, how many of you thought uh, Matthew was a decent guy? How many of you thought James was a good guy? How many of you thought John was a good guy? We're all going to raise our hands because we view them by their successes, not by their mistakes. But they are all just as guilty of thinking Jesus was bringing a worldly kingdom for worldly glory. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 35 to 37. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, I just think of Jesus in this moment hand on his palm, saying to James and John, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. We want to share your glory, Jesus. That's what we want. How many of us, if we're honest, have said just as much to Jesus? Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Jesus, when I pray to you, I expect to get what I ask for. Any of you have any small children around the age of three? I do. And this is the attitude my three-year-old has sometimes. Well, I asked for it, so give it to me. I want it. Killian is going to be a lawyer someday, possibly, uh, because he will argue on anything, color of the sky, um, Anything that's in front of you that is there, he will still argue that it's not. And sometimes we tell him, you can't have that. But I asked for it, he'll say. But I asked, and sometimes he'll be very clear, I asked politely. I said, please, so you have to give it to me. Man, when he says that, I think of us as Christians. Well, God, I asked politely. I went to church this week. I I went to prayer meeting. I read my Bible. I ask politely, so you better give me what I ask for. It's a good thing what I ask for. Killian thinks that all the time. Whatever he has, he's asking for, he thinks this is a good thing. If you're a good father, or you're a good mother, you would give this to me. And we do the same thing to God. If you're a good God, you would do this. If you're a loving God, you would do this. We argue with a God who doesn't exist. Remember what happens When Jesus was arrested, how many of them stuck by him and said, no, this is the Son of God, how dare you? Don't touch Jesus. They all ran. Why'd they run? They realized, man, this guy's not as powerful as we thought. If he was who we thought he was, he'd throw them all down on the ground. And not one of them would be able to touch him. And so when they'd see Jesus physically... Manhandled by the Romans or by the Jewish people, they run because this picture of who Jesus was in their mind shatters, and they're left with nothing because they think the God I serve doesn't exist, and the one who does stick around denies even knowing Jesus three times, even after Jesus told him he would do it, and he. He adamantly told Jesus he never would do that. He still does it. So what can we learn from the mistakes of Judas, the disciples, and all the people chanting, Hosanna? Well, I think the first question to ask yourself is, how do I see God? Do I see God through this lens of my desires, Do I see God through the lens of how I want to see him? Very likely, you see God at least through the lens of your earthly father. Many of us do that. It's very hard not to because we refer to God as Father God. And so we put certain attributes of our earthly fathers on him. For me, that means when I mess up, I expect God to do something to me because that's how I grew up. You did something wrong, you got punished. Many of us still expect God to be that way to be petty at times. So we see God through these different lenses. Maybe you've got past hurt. Maybe you were hurt by the church. Maybe uh, you watch enough TV and you think Christians are a certain way or you think church is a certain way and so you view God through that lens. But how do you see God? I guess more appropriately the question is, what dysfunctional way are you viewing God? Because let's be real, you're probably viewing him through a lens you shouldn't be. There's something there that you're adding to God. That doesn't exist. That's not real. Are you a teacher? We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you kind of person. When you encounter God, when you make requests of God, when you spend time with Him, do you try to convince Him why He has to do what you say or why He should do what you ask? Or. Are you like the centurion present when Jesus was crucified? Matthew twenty-seven, fifty-three to 54. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared, that's not the right verse. Oh, I'm sorry, it is. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake, and all that had happened, they said, this man truly was the Son of God. Now this isn't somebody who worshiped God previously. This isn't somebody who was brought up being taught about God. He experienced God and he recognized it for what it was. Some of us have too much teaching in our brains to see God for who he is. We have these false teachings. A long time ago we talked uh, about uh, our generational preferences versus biblical mandates. Some of us have these generational preferences that we've associated to the character of God that just simply aren't there and so we don't see God properly because we have this stuff in the way and what we need is a fresh experience of God that as we see him for who he truly is whether we were taught it or not we say this is God and that centurion was very clearly saw this is the son of God no one had to teach him that He didn't have to take a course to understand it. He didn't have to study Hebrew or Greek to understand it. He just saw him in an experience with him and knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is God. No doubt in my mind. Maybe some of us are in need of that. Do you, like the centurion, stand in awe of who God actually is and acknowledge truly This is the Son of God. When was the last time you encountered God in a way that you were driven to your knees and you were just in awe and said, This, this is God. This moment, this presence that I feel, this is God. No one has to teach me this. No one has to uh, expound on this for me. I know this is God. Will you continue to pray? to the God you've created in your head, to the Jesus you want to exist? Or will you do the work of learning who God is and worshiping him for who he truly is? Because it will take work. It'll take time to dig out those false lenses that we view God through. And we'll need to trust and lean into the power of the Holy Spirit to remove some of those. We can't do it. If you didn't realize that, if you didn't understand that, there's certain things in our relationship with God we can't do on our own strength. We will need God to enter that situation and heal certain things before we can begin to view God in a proper way and not worship an idol. So if you're honest with yourself this morning and you're able to acknowledge, I didn't have a carved image, but I've been worshiping an idol. I've been praying to a God who doesn't exist. I've been yelling Hosanna for years to a God who just isn't real. I've been worshiping the Jesus of my preference, not the God of all creation. And I would encourage you to sit before God, repent of that, and ask him to reveal himself to you because that's the kind of prayer God will answer. When you mean it and you sit before God and say, reveal yourself, I have, there's too much junk in the way, I can barely see you anymore, Jesus will burn through all those clouds and you'll see him for who he truly is. That's the power of God. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you reveal yourself to us, that you're a God who desires to make himself known. God, would you forgive us For the times, the years, for some of us, the decades, we've worshiped an idol. And God, right now, I want to pray against the spirit of pride. Because there are people here, there are people listening that will deny they've done this because the humility and the humiliation of realizing they've prayed to a false idol for years is too much. And so they'll continue on with their idea of who you are. Lord, I pray you would break through that and you would enable us to be honest with ourselves that we would acknowledge the false gods we've created and we would ask with a pure and earnest heart for an experience with you that your manifest presence would be made known to us and we would experience you for who you are because that's what changes us. That's what changes everything. And God, this morning, I pray you would do that for our people, that we would be people who begin to worship the true God. We begin to pray to the true God because there's nothing boring about praying to a true God. So if we've been bored, then we weren't praying to you. We were praying to an idol. And God, I pray as you reveal yourself to us, that we would grow in our desperate dependence on who you are. That the next time we yell, Hosanna! It would be to the God who is truly God. It would be to the God who, not is, who isn't just here to save us from the consequences of our bad decisions, but the one who's willing to save us from us. That we would allow you to lead us because we, we don't trust ourselves anymore. We begin to trust you more. God, I pray you would break through the clouds and the lenses that we've chosen to view you through. And this holy week, 2021, would be an eye-opening, spirit-growing, fire-inducing week like never before in our life. And our relationship with, with you would explode like it never has. And this Easter would be the best Easter of our lives because we would be able to worship you for who you are. God, I pray this over us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great holy week this week.